We're picking up this morning halfway through John chapter 19, verse 16. I'm going to read through the end of verse 28. Uh, sorry, 27. Uh, and so let's give, your, uh, give our attention to the reading of God's word this morning for his glory and for our good. So they took Jesus, they being the soldiers, they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says... They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God endures forever. Uh, We finished the trial of Jesus. We're looking now at his crucifixion. And so much of uh, John, and especially chapters 18 and 19 are about Jesus' kingship. Uh, Is he a king? And what kind of king is he? And we're going to keep digging into that this morning. And this morning, what I want us to see is that Jesus is a king on a cross. And as a king on a cross, he is both ruling and he's creating a new family. He's ruling as king on the cross and he's creating a new family. Uh, So the the passage picks up in verse 17. Jesus goes out bearing his cross. We read the short phrase, there they crucified him. Uh, We're not given the details of the barbaric procedure, which was so savage it couldn't be used against a Roman citizen. Uh, The commentaries love to go into the the horrific physical details of crucifixion. Uh, I could give you a couple of them, but John doesn't. His interest lies elsewhere. In verse 9, he tells us, sorry, verse 19, he tells us, 
that Pilate had an inscription placed on the cross above Jesus, which read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Uh, So remember that in Jesus' trial, Pilate found no guilt in him. Uh, Pilate had been making half-hearted attempts to try to release him, but the Judean leaders had Pilate backed into a corner. If he didn't crucify Jesus, they would make sure Caesar found out that Pilate was weak against challengers to Caesar's throne. And so Pilate condemned Jesus, delivered him over to be crucified. Uh, And crucifixion was a bloody, painful, shameful deterrent. Uh, Crosses lined Roman roads because part of the goal of a crucifixion was for people to walk by and see the suffering. And it was not uncommon for there to be an inscription on the cross that explained the crime that the person committed. This person was a murderer. This person was an insurrectionist and so on. And we read in verse 20 that Jesus is crucified at a place outside the city where many of the Jews would pass by and were told about the inscription that Pilate put on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Uh, And this provokes a reaction. The chief priests say, don't write King of the Jews, write he said he is the King of the Jews. And what Pilate does, he does on purpose. We could call it Pilate's revenge. Uh, Remember, the chief priests wanted Jesus crucified because they wouldn't have him as a king. So Pilate puts a sign on Jesus that he is the king of the Jews. And of course, to call a bloodied, weak, powerless, condemned, dying outcast your king is meant as an insult. Uh, Look, everyone, this is the captain of your team. And Pilate's got nothing to lose at this point. The leaders can't accuse him of being disloyal to Caesar because he's got Jesus up on the cross. And so he's happy to taunt and humiliate them and get the last word. And so when they say, change the wording to, he said he was the king of the Jews, Pilate says, no, I'm good, really. Uh, That's okay. What's done is done. Here is what Pilate and the chief priests agree on. If Jesus is on the cross, he can't be a king. Both understand the inscription to be a kind of mockery because they think to themselves, I know what a king is, and a guy on a cross isn't one. If you are looking at a man dying on a cross, it's hard to believe that that man is a king, much less the king of kings. Jesus' kingship, though, is exactly what John wants us to see. Uh, While all of the Gospels make reference to the title placed above Jesus, only John tells us in verse 20 that this title, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, appears in three languages, in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. In Aramaic, the language of Judea. In Latin, the official language of Rome. In Greek, the language of the street. In Aramaic, the language of religion. In Latin, the language of the state. In Greek, the language of the culture. 
And rather than an insult, the inscription is a universal proclamation of Jesus' kingship. Pilate has no idea as he writes this what Jesus has already said in John chapter 12. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And here is Jesus lifted up. And here is his kingship proclaimed for all men, whether Jews or Greeks or Romans. This is the king. Uh, Here's the question. Who defines what a king is? Uh, Is king just a metaphor that God uses to explain himself to us? Uh, Is it a human idea and God is borrowing it to help us understand him better? Or is God telling us something about his nature and his character as king? Something that human kings embody to some degree, but Jesus embodies in its fullest form. What if Jesus is God's definition of kingship? This beaten, bloodied man carrying a wooden beam on his way to suffer on a cross is exactly what a king really is. Because the cross is self-giving, because the cross is identification with people that you serve, because the cross is using your power for the sake of those that you love, that's what a king is. And being a king looks like Jesus going to the cross. So the kingship of Christ is not something that we expect. Uh, I think we often miss his real royalty, his real majesty are seen not uh, most in his moments of power, but in his moments of weakness and humiliation. It's what he's willing to do for us as our king. Uh, So Jesus is the universal king. He's also the ruling king. Uh, Here he is hoisted up on the cross. Uh, He's stripped of his clothes. Really, he's being stripped of his dignity. It's part of his humiliation. The four soldiers are dividing the spoils. They're gambling for his inner tunic. It certainly doesn't look like he's the ruling king. But John points out that this was to fulfill what is written in Psalm 22, a psalm of King David that speaks about the righteous suffering uh, of the king. And note, John in verse 24 says this, uh, they uh, said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, and then Psalm 22, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. I think the point here isn't so much that this is an amazing prediction that was only true of Jesus. Uh, Actually, Roman soldiers were entitled to the possessions of just about anybody that they crucified. So this kind of thing happened uh, to lots of people who were crucified. Uh, But note the end of verse 24 carefully. I believe it's the beginning of verse 25 in the New American Standard, if that's what you're reading. So the soldiers did... These things. So the soldiers did these things. Uh, Soldiers are people who obey the orders of the king. And who is the king 
whose orders they are obeying. Uh, It's not really Caesar through Pilate. The soldiers did not realize it, but they are fulfilling the kingly decree of Jesus. They were working so that his death would be in accordance with his own word in Psalm 22. And we are meant to see this is not a man being shamed and disrobed. It is the sovereign Lord whose enemies cannot help but, but fulfill what had already been written about him in Scripture. Uh, there are places in the world and in your own life where it looks like everything is going wrong. Places where you think to yourself, Jesus can't be ruling here. Uh, what if those are exactly the places where he's ruling? Uh, if he's ruling on the cross, he can be ruling there too. Uh, I want to point out one other thing briefly about the use of Psalm 22 here. Uh, the scriptures of Israel are the lens through which we make sense of what is happening to Jesus, that he is not uh, a man who is being crucified as a criminal. He is a king who is ruling and saving his people. Uh, When the soldiers divide his clothes, John cannot help but see the suffering king of Psalm 22. Uh, John is steeped in the scriptures of Israel. It is how he views the world. And that is what the scriptures are. They are a way of seeing the world. They are a lens through which it all makes sense. Uh, I don't want to keep banging a drum here, but if you spend all week long consuming other media, one hour of church on Sunday will not make the scriptures your lens for seeing the world. Uh, The world will be your lens for reading the scriptures and not the other way around. John spent so much time in the scriptures, he could not help but connect what is happening in this horrible moment of Jesus' death with what King David wrote in Psalm 22. Uh, I think we could use a little bit more of that in our own lives. Okay, here's what I really want to drill down on now. Uh, On the cross, King Jesus is not only ruling. He is creating a new community. And this is actually the point. This is actually the goal of his death. To create a fellowship of forgiven sinners who are bound to him and who are bound to one another. Uh, So now, in contrast to the four soldiers, uh, in verse 25, we get four women who are around the cross. I don't think we should miss John pointing out the faithfulness of these women Uh, who bravely followed Jesus when all the other disciples fled. Uh, But we also have this other figure, the beloved disciple. Uh, People tend to think this is John the Apostle. Uh, It's possible, maybe even likely, it could be a figure we know as John the Elder. That's a discussion for another time. Uh, But look at Jesus' words from the horror and the shame of the cross. Uh, In verse 26, we read, Sorry, here we go. In verse 26 we read, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. 
Notice, Jesus does not say, behold, my mother. Uh, Hey, dude, take care of my mother. He says, behold, your mother. And Jesus does not say, uh, mother, behold, your son. He says, woman, behold, your son. Uh, which is very similar, if you remember, to the wedding of Cana when Mary wants Jesus to solve the problem of no wine. uh, And Jesus responds, Woman, what have you to do with me? For my hour has not yet come. Uh, And woman emphasizes that Mary's identity as Jesus' mother is not important. It's not relevant. It's not significant. She is a follower, a disciple, a servant of the king like everybody else. So understand what John is doing here in these words. Uh, Understand what John is actually saying in woman, behold your son, uh, behold your mother. He is taking two unrelated followers... And he is giving them to one another, and he is putting them into a family relationship. Uh, And if you know something about what happens to a person's lungs when they are being crucified, Jesus is not chatty right now. He is gasping for breath, but he uses some of his last words to give his followers, to one another as a family. Uh, And don't miss what John says in verse 28, uh, sorry, 27, uh, that from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. From that hour, the hour has been a really important phrase in John's gospel. Uh, Jesus has said things like, my hour has not yet come. Uh, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour is the hour of Jesus being lifted up on the cross, which is happening right now in our text. It is the hour of the cross that creates a new family. Where does Christian community begin? Where does Christian community begin? It begins at the foot of the cross. It begins with two people standing at the foot of the cross and saying, this is the king. And then finding that because of the cross, they are given to one another by Jesus, and they are bound together by Jesus. We are not bound together because we agree politically or socially, or we have the same views on whatever the issue of the day is. That's not a family. That's a club. Uh, There are more and more churches like that out there. We are bound together because of the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ and the love of Christ and the gospel of Christ, who is our King. The cross of Jesus remakes human relationships for his followers. Okay, let me, let me say two things about this. First, 
I want us all to note that Jesus, as king on the cross, is putting us into dependent relationships with each other. Uh, To say that Jesus, as king on the cross, frees us does not mean that Jesus frees us to be independent, autonomous individualists. Jesus, as king on the cross, frees us by making us interdependent, connected, other-centered disciples. Okay, as everybody, I hope everybody sees that. Uh, Jesus as king on the cross does not free us to be independent. He frees us to be interdependent. He does not free us to be autonomous. He frees us to be connected. He doesn't free us so we can focus on ourselves. He frees us so we can focus on other people. The love that King Jesus wants to enter into your life cannot exist if you're all by yourself. It cannot exist if you isolate yourself with your nuclear family. It only exists uh, and and it requires self-giving to people for whom your only real connection is that they also belong to King Jesus. Uh, Here's a great quote. The only way to be a disciple of Jesus is in communion with disciples of Jesus. So Jesus as king on the cross is putting us in dependent relationships with each other. Here's the second thing I'd like to say. Uh, And I'd like to be a little controversial about it. American evangelicals are all about the importance of the family. And certainly, family is important. God created the family. What if evangelicals make family more important than Jesus does? Uh, Jesus said, A person who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus said, I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother. Jesus said, when his own family was at the door, those who do the will of God are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Jesus told a guy who wanted to bury his father, let the dead bury their own dead. You come and follow me. I think most people in this room probably believe, I'm not asking you what you affirm, I'm asking you what you probably believe. I think most people in this room probably believe my family is the people I'm related to and the church as a family is just a metaphor. Jesus regularly prioritizes the eternal family over the natural family. Actually, I would be really interested. If you know of a place where Jesus prioritizes the natural family over the eternal family, I would love to see it in Scripture. I can't think of one right now. Obviously, it's a great blessing when your natural family is also your spiritual family. And I think that's a sort of the goal of covenant life together, that it, it sort of permeates through all of our family structures. 
But Jesus is clear that loyalty to him and to his kingdom creates a new alternative family that in real ways transcends your earthly family. And we should think about that and about whether in the way that we reflect on church and act on church, we are domesticating Jesus and making him a little less radical than he really is. Uh, Okay, I hope this morning we see Jesus as king on the cross. Uh, Not only shedding his blood to forgive us, but continuing to rule over us and creating a new family. Uh, I hope we really understand what it means that Jesus uses some of his last words to give us to one another in loving, dependent relationships. Uh, And wouldn't it be beautiful uh, if we lived together and treated each other as a family, more real, more powerful, more enduring than even our natural families? Let's pray together.